Hello, Namaste, Sasriya Karl, and Salamu Alaikum. And this is Martin Morrison introducing this week's episode of The Culture Pot, the show that celebrates the music, the culture, and the people only on Radio Sangam. And you know what? I'm going to be upfront and say I've missed you. I've missed being here, missed being in the studio. Um, for those of you who are not aware or maybe didn't hear the show when I spoke about it publicly, um, you know, we all have ups and downs in life. Um, this is not a moan. I'm just saying what happened. About six weeks ago, I discovered that my uh, eldest son, who's just gone 20, um, had a massive brain tumour. When I say it was massive, put it this way, if you bought your you know, your child a toy car and it was as big as this tumour, they'd be delighted for years. It was massive. Um, and so you can imagine it was quite a shock. We only found out about it because he had a skateboarding accident, which uh, knocked him out. But... The good news is um, it's all out. They've done the biopsy. They've discovered that it's uh, 100% benign and uh, what they call a grade two. And um, so, you know, we have to watch his brain for the rest of his life. But it could have been so much worse. So um, that's my story. That's why I've not been in for a couple of weeks. I've been uh, visiting him in hospital as he's been making a slow recovery after having that removed but he's on the up i saw him in his house yesterday and he was looking glorious he's six foot three my son gentle giant lovely guy so it was wonderful to see him it brought tears to my eyes now talking about happiness um i've got a wonderful um person in my office today in the studio she's called valentina hines and um, she's got an organisation called um, SVH Inc., which I believe she's going to verify for me. I think it stands for Stronger, Vibrant, Happy Incorporations, because that's what she does. She helps companies to inject happiness, strong strength and vibrancy to make them more productive, mentally healthier places to be. And so... She touches upon all sorts of issues that I'm interested in. Equality, diversity, inclusion and mental health, of course. And she herself is a very positive woman. She's from uh, Nigeria originally. So it'll be the first time that I've chatted to somebody for some time who's going to be able to talk about a different culture as well, which is what it was supposed to be about the show originally when I founded it three years ago. So without any further ado, I've taken three minutes of your time. Let me bring the lady on herself. So, Valentina, say hello so I know your mic's working. Hi, Martin. Hello, everyone. Assalamu alaikum. Namaste. Dalu. Kedunu. Oh, fantastic. I know that last one was Ebo, wasn't it? Yes, it was. Yeah, I bet you didn't know I knew that, though, did <laughs> no, you? No, I wasn't expecting that. I love to surprise people with my knowledge of languages. There's no <laughs> language on this planet I can't destroy, believe no me. No way. So, um, thank you very much for coming on to the show today. Um, thank you for having me, Martin. Have I given you a fair introduction, or do you want to add to it? You've given me a great introduction, and the only thing I would add to it is that SVH Inc. is a family-owned business by my husband, Stephen, and myself. Obviously, my name is Valentina, so um, I'm not the only one who's steering this ship and trying to make a difference in a world of work but my husband and I are doing this. And um, this all came across because of an incident which could have had a real devastating effect on our family when my husband had a heart attack back in 2017 due to work-related stress and anxiety. And um, it made us investigate well-being in a workplace. And what we found is that while there is some well-being, there isn't a holistic approach to well-being at mm. work. And this is why we founded SVH Inc. to do what you've said, create stronger, vibrant, happier and incorporated teams in the workplace. What do you mean when you say incorporated teams? Well, um, incorporated, other synonyms could be inclusive, could be um, a team United, those are synonyms that um, could stand for incorporated. So we've used the word incorporated because aside from me just being um, inclusive, it also shows it's targeted at the workplace. 
Okay. Well, obviously, it's you that I got to know via my LinkedIn network. Yes. People are used to me bringing people here from the Professional Speaking Association. Um, but it's, I, I don't know who chatted to who first. I think maybe there was stuff going on with Black Lives Matter that we both jumped on, perhaps. I don't know. <laughs> but you, you're the one I've... Are you? Would you say that you are mainly the voice of uh, SVH Inc.? Well, yes, as the creative head, I am the voice. Though, funny enough, when we set it up, I was meant to be in the background, while Steven would be at the foreground. Again, um, with Black Lives Matter, this was way before then. And we did that because I was concerned about how a black woman, black youngish woman, would be um, accepted and viewed while, while trying to scale a business. And so we said Stephen should do it, him being a white man who fits right in with the British world as he's also originally British. And, um, well, as time goes on, you know they say you can't hide a passion. You just be who you are. And that's me being who I am, my authentic, true self. I'm I'm so glad that you've said that because um, while, of course, I'm sure that there are people who will um, talk to you differently simply because you're a woman, people who will talk to you differently because you're black, and people who will talk to you differently because you're both. Um, those people are probably not going to be persuaded by anything that Stephen could say or do either. And so I, I think it's great to see you heading this uh, this organisation because you've always shown a lot of passion and you know, you're a genuine person. With that, we've got seven seconds before we go to the ads. So we'll be right back. You're listening to Martin Morrison on Radio Sangam. Okay, so welcome back to the Culture Part, the show that celebrates the music, the culture, and the people of the world. Just so you know, uh, it's not a phone-in. Um, it's not a phone-in show. So even if you want to. Uh, ring in and say Martin we love you we want to marry you you're a great presenter much as I would love you to I can't take the call but feel free to text us or whatsapp us on um, 07444 202155 that's 07444 202155 so over to you Valentina my guest for today how are you doing again? I'm good thank you and you're enjoying the show so far? I am, I am. You're great company. So are you. So, <laughs> you, you know, me and Valentina had a chat the other day. I was, I was supposed to be working, and uh, you know, she called and I answered the phone because prior to that, when she called, I, I couldn't take the call. I was too upset. It was a, a day when my son was like really bad in hospital. So I took this call and I thought, let me start painting this fence, and it's a massive fence, and I did the whole fence. We must have done two hours on the phone. Very easy to get on with. So you, you've explained a little bit about what you're about and what you're trying to achieve. But uh, as I always say to my guests, and as I'm going to say to you, take us back to your childhood. Tell us where about in Nigeria you were born and a little bit about life growing up. Huh. Um, back to happy place, back to the formative years. So um, I was originally born in Abia State, but I was brought up in Lagos State. And um, I'm from a family of six, my dad, mom, obviously, and um, my siblings. So we have two girls and two boys, and I am the eldest. Now, in Nigeria, it's um, we have a structure, okay? So you have the father, the mom, and you have the first child. And then the dynamics also depend on what gender the first child is. So if you're male or if you're female. And then as the fourth child, really, you are daddy and mommy when they're not home. So you're like the third parent and you have all these responsibilities laid on your shoulders. So we do learn and we do tend to grow up very quickly because we have to be quite responsible. And this is not a bad thing. It's a great thing, I think, but could also be a bad thing because it could be a major stressor. But like all things in life, there's a balance somewhere there. So I grew up as the first child who had to watch out for my younger ones and make sure everyone was okay and happy and at the same time find my own voice and fit. So I have two very dominant parents my dad is dominant and my mom is dominant and they had really different parenting approaches. So while my mom was, 
she who must be obeyed in a way. <laughs> My dad was um, he who must be obeyed in a way. But with his children, he was quite democratic and um, liberal. But also, he knew how to play us, especially me. So he let us have our voices. He insisted we had a voice. And um, he just would ask, for example, when I was in primary four, I heard for the first time there was something called common entrance. Now, I'm just, my son, my eldest is four years old, so I'm just starting to learn the lingo here and how you phrase this. So perhaps, Martin, you can explain better. Um, common entrance examinations is the exam you write to go from primary school to secondary school. And um, what do you call it here, Martin? Well, when I'm, I'm on 50 now. When we did it, it was called the 11 plus. 11 and, plus. And, and when we did it, it was like a, you, you either passed and you went through to a grammar school, uh -huh. either the first or the second choice, depending on how you'd done. Yes. Or you went to the secondary modern, which was seen as, you know, that's where the masses went. Uh -huh. you. But they got rid of that system because they thought it was elitist. Yes. So um, I'm not quite sure. these. It's, it's been a while since... Uh, since you, know, you did that. Yeah. Anyways, we have that Sats, structure. I think you're talking about, maybe. Yes, yeah. but... Um, Having this wasn't, it wasn't dependent on what school you went to. Right. You just went in and you went to the particular school you wanted to go to and they had this entrance exam you have to write. So um, I said to my dad, because I had friends who were in primary six, and I said to my dad, I want to write this exam and I want to leave <laughs> primary school and go join them. And my dad said, okay, what's the exam called? And I said, it's called a common entrance exam. And he said, go find out more. And that was it. I was in primary four. I wasn't, to some people, I wasn't mature enough to get out and do it. But as far as my dad was concerned, if I thought I was ready for that. and um, So how old were you in primary four? Maybe about eight. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, we'd normally go into senior school as 11-year-olds. Yeah, yeah. Right. so I think I was about that age. And um, he went ahead and did some research. I did my little research, speaking to those in primary six who didn't really know what <laughs> it was all about. But mm -hmm. what he wanted me to do and what he wanted to see for me was that I was studying properly and I was studying really hard to do this and I sort of saw it as an opportunity to go into the police secondary school with my big cousins and just have all of this power. Now I have to say something about back then in Nigeria we had just sort of come out of military rule and so to have that uniform that authority you you um People wouldn't mess with you. And that was the ideal. And I wanted so, so to. So, were you saying them. it was like you were like a police cadet? I wanted to. Right. I wanted to become one. Yes, okay. that's what I was trying to get into. And my grandfather found out that I had written this exam and I was going to go miles away from home. So, essentially, I was going to be in a boarding school. And my grandfather called my dad and said, Now, first off, she's too young to be going into secondary school. And secondly, She's too young to be going into boarding school. She's got to be close to you. If she insists on going into the secondary school, then she's got to go to one next to you where you can keep a close eye on her. And that was very heartbreaking for me because I really wanted to get away, you know, and um, join what everyone else was doing. But I did go to secondary school, and that's just an example of how my dad gave us that autonomy. He would push us on and do it. And my mum... Do you know I, what? Just hold that thought on your mum, because we've done a lot of talking so far, and we've had some ads. We're uh, going to put a track on. Um, so the next track we've got is uh, Booed Up by Ella May. So you're listening to Martin Morrison and Valentina Hines on The Culture... No. And I so... Valentina, um, before that song, you were telling us about the influence that your father had on your life and, yes. and education. You certainly sounded to me like you were a very ambitious, uh, maybe even power-hungry child. <laughs> 
you know, wanting to wear a uniform so you could go around telling others what to do. I'm only, I'm only playing. Yeah, um, you better be, Martin. I am. I'm play- there you go. You see, you do hear the authority of that that voice. Although I've seen, I've seen on LinkedIn that you. Um, I mean, that comment you made. I won't go into it now. But with that person who trolled one of your posts, and uh. on, honestly speaking, as a writer. I was like, well, well, I would have been very proud of that comment. Well, <laughs> it was really well written, you know. Thank I, I you, thought, Martin. I thought, How many times did she reread this and edit it before posting it? You know, it was one of them. So I know you can be authoritative. But tell me about your mother's influence. Well, my mum's influence, I have to say, to give you a context of where my mum's come from. So she had a very dominant dad as well who worked a lot under colonial rule, directly with the colonialists. And um, he was the kind of person who, if his children came home crying, he would stop them at the door before they got in to say what happened. And if it turns out that they got into a fight, the next question is, who won the fight? And if they say they lost the fight and they're looking for comfort, he sends them right back to go back and finish the fight. (laughs) So you had to finish what you started. And my mom was a lot like that, quite um, passionate, but um, very strict. So what she, her her parting legacy to us, she's still alive, don't get confused. But one of the things she instilled in us was finish what you start. Like um, if you don't want, she had this wonderful saying she used to say, if you don't want to eat a food, don't smell it. Get out of there. And basically what it meant was always finish what you start. Don't get into something that you're going to only go halfway with. And that's something she brought us up with. And personally, that's really, really shaped the way I deal with things. And she's also taught us to learn how to be self-sufficient. So quickly assess a situation, figure out what you can do to get your way out of it, and then do it don't sit there waiting to be saved another thing she used to say was heaven helps those who help themselves (laughs) so if you're not helping yourself no one's going to help you okay but you know what i i feel like challenging that now just because i'm a big believer in all of that i think that people are a lot more resilient than they think they are yes and people should certainly be conscientious about moving into something they should go into things mindfully rather than just ending up there Mm. but what about those situations where we have made a wrong turn genuinely and you know then you could say what's the expression don't throw good money after bad Mm -hmm. all those sorts of things Mm -hmm. what what would your mum have said about that well first off my mum was really big on books she still is. She's really big on books. She's really big on music. And music, not for the sake of music, but music for the lyrics. I think I first heard Hello by Lionel Richie, thanks to my mom. And um, all of those things. So she was always into big on empathy. Think about it. So if you've gone into something and this wasn't the right thing to do. Now, where my mom and dad had this crossing where they really met a junction between each other and they passed that on to us was doesn't matter what kind of problem or situation you found yourself in you just have to look creatively and find your way out now do you have to walk out or do you have to forge another path and a bit like what you've said we're more resilient than we think and that's always that my mom would say I remember I'll be sick or one of us would be sick and be shivering all covered up and she would come in and take the covers up and say go and have a shower and put some powder on <laughs> you'll be fine now personally I used to think that was horrible a horrible thing to do to a child who just wants love and comfort you know and it's a lot of tough love but truth be told every time after we were done doing or well, she had forced us to do something like that always felt marginally better and it didn't look as dire as it did so yeah she used to have a lot of tough love but the take home there is it doesn't matter what you're going through sometimes you just need to speak with someone else borrow a fresh set of eyes 
and you find your way out. So sometimes it's a case of it's it, it's getting through a situation with grace and moving on with a learning experience yes. rather than being you know coming out on your backside. Yes, really, it's it's how it's how you adapt. Yes. Okay. And I must admit, I liked what you just said, you know, with regards to um, whenever you look back, even if you've been forced into something, you always felt better afterwards. Because I have this thing of getting my kids up very early in the morning, sometimes seven o'clock before they were going back to school. (laughs) So I get them up at seven o'clock and it was like, come on, you're going to the park and you're coming with me. And I can be quite strict as a martial arts teacher as well. And Tony, in particular, who's 14, might not want to get out of bed. Mm. And my line to them, which never fails, I always say, listen, has there ever been a time when you came to the park that you didn't feel better afterwards? Mm. And that's the killer line. That's the one that always gets them because we always go home. They've always ended up learning something or finding something out or just chilling out, you know, and you feel better. Yeah, got to say, Martin, if I was your daughter and you said that to me, you'd get me out. And that said, I'm not an early morning person. Never been. Oh, well, I've got to say, I failed miserably with my daughter. (laughs) She she thinks I'm an idiot most times. Uh, She won't be listening to this show, so I can say that. Um, So, okay, this has been, I've really enjoyed our conversation. So what I want to tap into something else that you and I spoke about off off, um, air, Mm. which was, you know, it seems to me that you were in a very democratic household. You had, you know, the, the father of the house on the one hand. Yes, he was strong, he was powerful, and he was authoritative. But he was very much a coach, allowing you and giving you the authority and the support yes. to go in the direction that you wanted to go in. Yes. And then you had your mum who was giving you the tough love, um, which is great. But one of the things that doesn't... that, that that sits with me is I've always thought, particularly of Nigeria as being quite a patriarchal society where mm. the woman's supposed to be in the kitchen, even if she's got a master's degree yes. and the man is in charge. So talk us through that and how that played out in your home. Well, funny enough, we have a saying, doesn't matter how educated you are or um, where you travel to, you're still going to end up in the kitchen. That's um, a saying in Nigeria. And yes, it's very patriarchal. And um, again, like I said to you off air, it has a lot to do with the family dynamics. So I'm Igbo and I'm originally Ngwa. And for the Ngwas, the Ngwa woman is quite revered. She's hardworking, she's creative, she's persistent, she's industrious. And um, if you know anything or a lot about Nigerian history, you'd have heard of the Aba Women's Strike. No. Um, I'll delve into that later. But what it basically is, is that the woman is the one who, she also goes to the farm, she gets her produces, she comes to the market, she sells them, she keeps her money. She could give some to her husband if she wants to. But her husband, being the head, he deals mainly with yams, you know, the chief crops. He does that. He takes care of the whole family and then it extends to the external families as well. But then between that, you have the father who's like the total authority. And it depends on what kind of personality he has and how enlightened he is. So if he is the typical patriarchal type who doesn't let the woman speak at all, then she doesn't speak. But mind you, the women have a group called the Ngwa Women Group or just a women group. Depends on what um, place they are from. And so women have their own societies where they come in with their grievances, maybe marital, maybe work-related. But they have authority and it's so strong that if a woman was to get married or a man was to get married, he had to appease, he would have to appease the fathers, the mothers, the women, the ADAS associations that's called the daughters associations. And everyone has to say yes. Same thing happens if a person dies. You've got to appease, and by appeasing, it means you have to go before all of these people and pay certain fees before you can bury your loved one. So if one of the people should say no, then that burial date 
postpones. <laughs> and so you can see how the women also have a voice, as patriarchal as it is. So um, in, in a way, it's like, yes, there's a hierarchy and males have the authority. But if they abuse that authority, yes. they will soon know about it. Yes, yes, that's well said. Well, you know, I've known quite a few Nigerian women, so, uh, women and I've never known a soft one. <laughs> what do you mean? I'm soft. No, you know, you, you've got the soft exterior and a big smile, but I won't mess with you, Valentina. <laughs> Now you say I was concerned you'll bring some dirt out. <laughs> no, I haven't got any yet. <laughs> so, um, another question I want to ask you about, because I know that like recently over here we've, we've got the um, Black Lives Matter movement and the rest of it. And as you know, I did an experiment today on social media where I was asking people about whether or not they're influenced by anything that's been said on social media are we just all talking to echo chambers mm-hmm. or are we actually making a difference and you know what on a professional group that i posted um for coaches and writers and speakers someone came on board and said that they changed from being not racist to anti-racist so mm-hmm. through these discussions they'd had They've come to an understanding that simply, you know, having a choice that I'm not going to discriminate, okay, but not standing up against the discrimination. It's just not good enough. You've got to go out. True. And that was really interesting. So I'm speaking to you now as somebody who has come from a country of colonial rule. Yes. What was your attitudes to race? Because I know diversity and inclusion is really important in terms of what you do now. Tell mm-hmm. us a little bit about how those ideas were formed as you were growing up as well. Martin, that's a, it's a deep, deep conversation. It's gone so deep into our psyche. And this is not just for the black person, but for the white person and every other race in between. It's huge. And what happened, especially with the British indirect rule, was that they came in and in true conqueror style, they took away the dominant people, those who were natural leaders, those who could think for themselves, and those who knew right from wrong. They took them away, eradicated them completely so there's no one to question their new sovereignty. And How did they eradicate them? Like violently? Or well, just... they had the violence. They put some of them in jail. They killed some of them. Some of them got sold off into slavery. And then in their place, they had warrant officers. And these are the lily-livered ones who, excuse the language, but in those days they were termed lily livered and those who would be the judas iscariots quick to um, sell their brother out in the bid for power and what happens is when you change a dynamic like that and people have power that they don't deserve and haven't really worked properly for they'll do everything they can to protect that power and in that case you have power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely so there were the British Pied Piper doing whatever the sovereign wanted in order to maintain power and to a large extent it started to eradicate our conscious thinking into thinking if it's white I mean look at it Jesus Christ is portrayed as white. Muhammad is portrayed as white. He's not black. The black man is the devil. The devil is black. And um, everything evil is black. I mean, look at our language. You've been blacklisted. What's the key word there? Hmm. Black. And things like this constantly being put into our psyche has created for a lot of African countries the thinking that if you look Caucasian, you're better. If you sound Caucasian, you're better. So before I came to England, I didn't have, I didn't experience race the way I've experienced it here. I just realized while I was in Nigeria that if you went to a good school, you most probably would end up with a good accent, which um, doesn't sound like it belongs to a particular region. You 
most likely will be cultured. Therefore, you are most likely to be affiliated with white people. And if you're affiliated with white people, then you're better. Okay. On that note, I'm going to play a track. Go on. Take us into the news by Madonna, <laughs> and it's called Frozen by steps but i'm gonna say thank god it's sunday because i love doing my sunday radio show if you've just joined us i've been chatting to valentina hines uh, valentina is a specialist in bringing um strength vibrancy and uh, well-being into the workplace and, and bringing people together so we've been chatting about you know her formative years and about her uh, where she she grew up in Nigeria so just before the news uh, Valentina we were chatting about um, you know I was asking you about the colonial past of Nigeria because yes. I know diversity and inclusion is important to you and um, we're going to talk about how you met your husband later, but I know that you said that um, the impression you gave me was that because even though you've got all the, the prejudice, the discrimination, that the darker something is, the more negative it is perceived, and mm. the lighter it is, the more positive it's perceived, the way that affected you and your countrymen in Nigeria was not to feel downtrodden and upset, but to actually feel like you aspired to be white. Yes. And, okay. that, and that ties in with the things like skin whitening and all the rest mm -hmm. of it, which we talk about. So how do you think that that impacted on you? I know you said you tried to remove your accent. <laughs> Every now and then, though, you come out with a corker, <laughs> which is great because I love the Nigerian accent. Thank you, Martin. Um, now, have you heard of Chino Achebe? Who? Chino Achebe. That name does ring a bell, but I don't know why. Well, have you read Things Fall Apart? No. Um, well, he's our biggest ambassador. Okay. He was our biggest ambassador. And I do know you read that here. They read that here in um, schools, I think secondary schools. Now, Chino Achebe had this thing where he said you have the colonial background and experience mm -hmm. and then what you do is you turn that into your ladder kind of and you scale from there really so in my experience what it did for me and also having been well educated in um, really good schools what that did for me was to learn how to use the English language, which, by the way, if you're listening, is the f it's our official first language in Nigeria. So don't be surprised that I can speak English properly <laughs> because um, for a lot of families, they grow up speaking English first. A lot of children do before they speak their mother tongue, which could be any of the th over 300 languages we have in Nigeria. So what it did for myself and a lot of people was that um, for a lot of us, it eradicated our culture. It gave us this thing to aspire to in order to be accepted by the greater ones. And right now in Nigeria, we have a culture pot that is... I like that. We have a culture pot that is influenced Registered by... Registered trademark. <laughs> Go on, carry on. Sorry. Well, I'm safe. I'm using it in here. It's all right. You're my friend. It's okay. <laughs> Thanks, Martin. So we have a culture pot that is influenced by American culture, the British culture, and um, at the moment, I think even the Indian culture is starting to penetrate into it. But at the main, we say we are colonized we were colonized unwillingly by the British and now we are colonized willingly by the Americans. You go. But we have colorisms which has led to a lot of um, health conditions for a lot of people, not just um, physically but mentally because um, the whiter you are, the better a lot of people seem to think. If you're fair, you are more beautiful and therefore, it also means that you're richer. And if you're richer, you can afford certain things. And if you can afford certain things, you can afford to charge certain things. And people wouldn't actually blink an eye, an eyelid, because you obviously looked apart. And if you're darker, it covers a multitude of sins. So suddenly, you're not as well off as the other person. 
there you have it. But I know a lot of people are suffering with skin conditions and all the rest of it because they're using these skin whiteners. Yes. And I think it's it's interesting what you've said as well about, um, you know, now the way I see it is it's media brainwashing about how great America is. Hmm. I'm, I'm always surprised given what's been happening in America, for example, mm-hmm. with, with the way black people seem to be indiscriminately ki- killed mm. without any accountability. Yes. And to a lesser extent, or, or less blatantly, because our coppers aren't shooting them over here, it's happening as well. And yet, there are so many Africans who dream about going over on a plane and living in, in America. And I'm always like, you know, really? Even my 12-year-old boy is saying, Dad, I don't want to go and live in America. <laughs> You know, and that explains it's because they're aspiring to be integrated and to be part of it. Yes, and again, the greatest export that America has is Hollywood. It covers a plethora of scenes. It's so glamorized the world of America that every time they carry Jane, Janet, and Charlotte is aspiring to go to America because that's the dream and in reality it isn't but again I have to remind you of the saying the grass is always greener on the other side and now I'm not going to sit here and say to you that it's perfect in Nigeria or in most of Africa it isn't we're dealing with corruption mm. and corruption is so is so bad so intrinsic to the makeup of the countries that it affects everything and even um, uh, sorry i just want to say because you've you've sort of moved perfectly into what my next question was going to be but you, to you, do that you, you'd also partly um this ties with what you were saying earlier on about puppets making it into positions of power you see because i think the stereotype let's face it it's the elephant in the room is that Nigeria is seen as you know, certainly the most corrupt place in Africa and the, the corruption centre of the world sort of thing. And we know all of the jokes about the email, the money left, you know, that needs to be passed down, all that sort of stuff. What's the reality? Is it dangerous? What, what's it like living in Nigeria compared to here? I'm not going to curse. I'm not going to use the word I was thinking. <laughs> but it's absolute crap. It's nonsense. It's nonsense. So every country, they've got their problems. I've been in this country and even to date, there's somebody who has been trying, who has been trying to scam me, claiming to be from the HMRC. And then this same... And we all get that one. Yeah, uh, this particular one calls constantly and even claims to have the police at my door. And I'm like, oh, yeah, that's fabulous. I'll go open the door for them. And can you please tell me your name again? Because I'm recording this conversation and I can use it in a court of law to prove <laughs> that I was contacted. But then they also send emails using my company's <laughs> name. So it's a bit... It's a funny one when you're sending yourself meals. <laughs> I mean, you would know, wouldn't you? I've had that one. And they, they sit there and they say, you must be wondering how it is that we've managed to use your email address. Mm. That's because we've hacked it and we know exactly what you've looked at on the internet. I always laugh at that one. <laughs> I always want to reply back to them, but apparently yeah. if you reply back to them... you, you get know, They get you. They know you're real. I then. haven't gotten that one yet. I've okay. only gotten things like HR here are your benefits and things like um, outstanding payments, SVH Inc. And I just laugh at it. Mm. But um, does that mean it's a Nigerian doing it? Shall I claim it's a Nigerian prince doing it? But back to what I said way earlier on about lily-levered people who mm. have been put in place of these people who are actually forward-thinking and um, independent-minded. This is where the whole onus of corruption started from because we've gotten those people and these people will do everything to stay in power. And um, let's face it, we've got Western influences still, still working in Africa because Africa is rich. And most of the money is in the hands of the exactly. people Exactly. Africa is rich and it pays the Western world to just keep that balance the way it is because when you get someone who actually can think for themselves and create this truly sovereign country 
it doesn't help anymore, does it? Then you have to pay more. I don't know if you heard, but you know that France was collecting money from Côte d'Ivoire until last year. It's scandalous. Exactly. And the only reason they stopped was because of the outcry that came out of that. Now think about all the other countries that are still meddling with Africa in this way. So yes, we've got stereotypes. If you're Nigerian, you're a scammer. If you're Nigerian, you're a kidnapper and all of that. (coughs) And it's nonsense. I mean, we've got all of that in Nigeria. But we've got way more. We are more than they portray us to be. We're educated. We're learned. We're cultured. I'll tell you what, going to go to the ads, but on that note, I know a lot of Nigerians, which I think you, you you know, and they're all happening, educated people who are making a massive difference in their community. Let's go to the ads. So, uh, welcome back to The Culture Pot, the show that celebrates the music, the culture and the people of the world. And you know what? I'm going to say something here. Before we were talking about the America and you said about the grass always being greener and um, you know I've got to say I'm going to have a conversation with my son about this because my eldest son he's just gone 20 in a hospital right he was in a terrible state after that brain operation now I know for a fact it was costing him £10 a day to have the TV but he wasn't having to pay for the surgery and all the rest of it Mm -hmm. right so I'm sitting there thinking because I know he aspires to go to LA for example (laughs) just imagine if we'd be in America right now without insurance, brain mm. tumour, they're going to have to do scans now every three months, certainly for the first few years. They're going to be watching his brain for the rest of his life. Now, that is a constant medical expense. It is. I'm so grateful for the NHS. Thank you, God, for putting thank me in the country. Thank you, NHS. And thank you, NHS. Thank you, government. Keep it there, please. That's right, you know, because you know what, it's not a political show, but they always go on and on, don't they? That, you know, if you vote Conservative, they're going to sell off the NHS, there'll be no more. And, you know, if you vote Labour, they're going to tax us to death. But I think (laughs) the truth is somewhere, you know, it's not on either. You know, our NHS is going strong, and what a great job they did with COVID. So, coming back to you, because you are my star today. um, I know you did a degree then in English literature. I did. So um, tell us how your career took off from there, because you can't do what you're doing now without certain life experiences. True. Uh, Okay, so um, I graduated from the university, and um, the year I graduated was... It was like being stuck in quicksand, Martin. It's the year I almost died twice. Oh, okay. I, I know you said to me you'd had something bad, didn't I've I? I've had quite a few. What happened? That year. So I graduated, and um, in Nigeria we have this thing called NYSC. That's the National Youth Service. And um, what it basically means is that you're like a cadet for a year giving service to your country so if we went into war for example mm-hmm. while it's a bit like internship because we don't really have formal internship um, programs but um, when you're out of the university you go for this one year of compulsory internship but it also means that if the country went into war for example and we didn't have enough soldiers they could call on you like exactly. So um, I was meant to go for that and I went back to school to pick up my certificate and call up letter. And when I arrived, they had banned motorbikes, which is a means of transportation in Imo State. And I got there <laughs> and um, it was past curfew time. So... I wasn't sure what to do. What time's curfew time? Well, curfew at that time was, I think, 7 o'clock or so. And I had only gotten there at about... I think I actually got there just at curfew time, 7. And there was this elderly man who was on a motorbike. And he says, don't worry, get on and I'll take you to where you're going to. So I thought, well, he looks like my dad, you know. What can he do? So I got on it. And off we went. It was a lonely road, 
And then he suddenly turned. Another bike was coming towards us and he had to turn around and downward shout and police, police, police. So he turned around and said, why are you turning around? And he says, because the coffee's on and they would arrest us. So we have to go through another route. So I'm like, okay. In my mind, I'm happy because the other route is the main road and not this deserted road. I mean, it's not so deserted. It's just like a street. There are houses, there are people, but it's deserted. You know what I mean? Mm. So I'm happy that that's what's going to happen. And then this other bike double crosses us and parks in front. And the two people on that bike jump out with guns. And my the man who had me jumps out as well with a gun. So suddenly I have three guns pointed at my head. And they say, give us your wallet and your phone. So I opened my bag to give it to them. But instead of them just waiting for that, they took my bag and they took my luggage and off they went. And I started to scream because that was my educational history walking away from me. And in there I had all my certificates, the originals. And in Nigeria it's not that easy to get your originals or to get replacements. So I started to run after them, crying, please bring the bag back. Take every other thing, but give me my certificate. It was quite traumatic. And I'm screaming and thinking people will come out of their houses to render help, but no one did. And so I just kept walking on this deserted road. And suddenly I was surrounded by over 20 men. And each one of them saying, what happened? What happened? What happened? Oh, she's a pretty girl. What happened? And all I'm thinking then is, God, am I going to get raped? <laughs> you know. And while they're asking what's happened, the man who initially took me came back. Don't tell me he gave you a bag back. I wish. He came back and said, what happened, young lady? And instantly I assessed the situation. And I said, I've been robbed. And he said, would you recognize them? Can we go and try and find them? And I said, no, I won't recognize them. I just know that one of them is a bit older, but I won't recognize them. All I just want is my certificate. I just want those. And I was saying it to him because mm. I knew he was the one and he was looking at me. He was <laughs> trying to give you a warning yeah. to say not to get him in trouble. But yes. You, you, were, you were using it to your advantage. Yes. Yeah. But... Um, he didn't heed it. And so I'm still working, just crying my head out. And the police start to drive past. And I see my savior. So I start to run after the police. Stop, 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 stop. And there were some policemen. In, it's, a, it's a wagon. The policemen sitting behind. And then I heard one of them shout to the driver, stop, there's a girl running after us. And the police says, oh, please just keep going, his partner says. And they drove off and left me. And so I had to keep walking with all these men who were there. Just, you know, that's a scary moment. But I know I just said it's absolute rubbish <laughs> about crime in Nigeria. But if it was a normal, I would have expected that. It wasn't a normal. And that was a defining moment for me. Mm. So it was even worse because I'm sorry to say this, but... As a woman, you're seeing your period and you've just gone back to a state where you don't leave anymore. So, and you get robbed. You haven't got any thing, no clothes, no change of underwear, no shops are open, no money, no way to reach the world. Total vulnerability. That's where I was. It was, it was a low, Martin. It was a low. But it didn't end there. I wish it did. Let's take a break. Let's listen to this track by Usher. This is Ben. So happy Sunday, guys. I hope that, uh, you know, if you've been listening to the entire interview, you've enjoyed the time together because I know I've enjoyed meeting Valentina in person today, especially during these interesting lockdown times. Um, you've got me and Valentina until five o'clock and then I believe that my good friends Gia and Javid will be coming in. It'd be nice to see them. So, Valentina, you told us about a very traumatic event that happened to you. Uh, where you, you ended up being robbed at gunpoint. 
um, all your stuff's being stolen. You're in a vulnerable position. You're, you know, a lone woman with nothing. You know, the police have gone off and left you. Yes. Um, and you've lost all your certification. Pretty low point. And uh, as you rightly pointed out, just because that happened as an isolated incident doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, you're going to get robbed at gunpoint every day in Nigeria. Yes. So I, I don't think it negates what you've said. <laughs> but I was, I was glad that you flagged it. And said that because anybody <laughs> might have thought, hold on. You know, but I think it was. Yeah, a, that's a bit inconsistent. It's isn't not it? like you were expecting it. So, but that was not the only trauma that happened to you that year. No, it wasn't. That was um, that was the year I think I realized I was a phoenix. Mm-hmm. So, um, for this NYSC, what happens is the government just puts you to a random, a random state. It could be anywhere really literally and I was really hoping it was going to be to Lagos because I had gotten a job I had stuff sorted and I thought the government would look at it and be like oh yeah she has something to contribute so let's let her go to Lagos which is where my parents were but it didn't work out that way so I got back and well I got to school to pick it up first off I had to jump all these hurdles in order to get a letter then picked it up and I was posted to Taraba State. <laughs> and at this point, I'm thinking, wait, where's Taraba State? <laughs> you know. Taraba State. Taraba. Taraba. Mm. I'm thinking, where's Taraba State? And then people say, oh, that's in the north. It's, it's a little, little, little place there in the north. It's so far away. It's about, I'm like, wait, what? What? You know? And then I had to report the next day. <laughs> so, yeah, I'm in emo state. I haven't got clothes. I haven't got money. I haven't got anything. And I have to go to Taraba State the next day. And so at this point, I called my dad and said, can This I? is the next day after you're being robbed? Yeah. Oh, wow. And so okay. I said to my dad, can I cry now, daddy? Because, you know, when he had heard what happened, yeah. he had first said, you can't cry, you've got to let it go. So I said, am I allowed to cry now? Because it seems like everything's just falling apart. And he goes, no, no, you still can't cry. I could tell he was very upset about it. And my mom was upset, rightly so for everyone to be upset because they had thought they would have time to be able to for me to be able to suck my accounts out and they could send me some money you know mm. and i could go back and get clothes anyways but yeah. that didn't happen so i had some really good friends including my cousin who rallied around me and just gave me a little then if you know that nokia you know the touchlight nokia yeah. the one that had no nothing on it you Shaped couldn't like even listen to music yes yeah. you could just that's what I got. And then I was able to get some clothes from a few friends. And off to Taraba State, I went where something else horrible happened to me. So because I was going off to Taraba State and I didn't know anyone, I had to go on route Abuja. And it was about, I think, about 12 hours or so, this journey. And my sister, very worried about me, was calling around amongst her friends to see if anyone was around. And I had a friend in Abuja and I called but um, he wasn't around. He was away. And he said, I'm away. And um, I think the phone died, so he couldn't call back. And um, Or maybe he called back when he was calling my old number and not this new number which I had. So I didn't have any idea that he had tried and booked the hotel for me. Mm. So I didn't know that. And my sister was going crazy, calling all her friends to see if anyone was available. And a friend of hers had a friend who had a friend who had a place there. And this friend said, oh, no, she sounds like she's been through the ringer. Bring her over and would accommodate her. I wish I hadn't. I'll leave it there. Anyway, next day, after spending the night, I'm off to Taraba State. And I get to Taraba State, and it's a good soft landing, you know. It's not what you expect at all, but like we talked about earlier, if things aren't the way you expect it to be, you've got to learn how to make lemonade. And so I learned how to make my (laughs) lemonade. I was just leaving, you know, just enjoying the three weeks of compulsory military workouts and boot camp that's what it was really and I thought yes this is where I'm going to be I'll find a good job here so I went off to try and find placement letters and I got the offers 
But then what happens? I get told by the government I've been sent back to Lagos. I'm like, no, <laughs> you can't do this to me because I've lost a placement in Lagos and I've got one in Taraba. Mm. But now I have to go back to Lagos. So I spent about a week trying to cancel that, but eventually just had to accept it and go back to Lagos State where I then had to find another placement. And a very good friend of mine got me in touch with a friend of hers who said, I'll give you a placement letter. So I got that and um, got robbed again. <laughs> and um, this time I wasn't robbed at gunpoint, just a pickpocket, picked my pocket and that lovely new phone was gone, which I had money to get. But then this company was meant to be paying me some sort of pittance, you know, to cover my transportation. Mm -hmm. But then, because it was a bit like going from Harrogate to London, that's how it was every day. So I was having to get home at about 12 a.m. at night and then get up at about 4 a.m. in the morning so that I would get back to work at about 8 a.m., and this is mainly because of traffic. The congestion is so bad. Mm. But this is such a hard life to be living. And the company wasn't paying. They were having some sort of difficulties. And that's my, that was my first introduction to buzzes who lived life on the fly and just disregarded people who worked for them. Mm -hmm. So he would come in. He wasn't paying anybody at work because the company was having financial issues. But he would come in to work with girlfriends and food, you know, from takeaways. And then sometimes have the audacity to say to us, oh, look, I've got these new shoes, but I'm not sure which one I should buy. And they're both Italian shoes, handmade, you know, and he's reeling out money. But nobody who he was talking to had even had lunch because there was no money. Mm. And it was just, I was disgusted by this. But it wasn't long before I got ill. I got really ill and so ill that my dad had to say, you know what, you go live with my sister during the week and come back during the weekends. But it was too late. What was it, stress-related? It was stress-related, but then um, it was also malaria, typhoid. But it was really stressed because I wasn't getting anything more than about two, three hours sleep every day. So I was just, I was almost a gunner. And mm. I remember my aunt thinking, oh, well, you're closer now, so not much to worry about. And she used to give me lots of fruits and stuff. I mean, I was getting more sleep because I was getting back earlier. But it was too late because I was really sick at that point and just losing a lot of weight. And then she thought she would detoxify me. And that was the worst thing that could have been done to me at that point. And I just remember waking up one morning on the floor and my aunts, both of my aunts, because I had this other aunt who lived down the street and she had come to visit her elder sister. And they came in to say hello and I was on the floor and they're like, oh God, what are we going to do? And my aunt says, oh, I better go get some more medication or something. And my other aunt said, if you want her father to kill you, just don't take her to the hospital. Because mm -hmm. <laughs> that's what you need to do right this minute. She's so dying. You mean they wanted to, did one of them you use some sort of herbal treatment or? Oh, whatever. yeah. So she was just going to go get maybe like malaria medication or stuff. It's not like here oh, okay. where you have to get a doctor to do stuff for you. There you just walk into the pharmacy and say what you need, you know. It's not that regulated. And um, so they rushed me to the hospital and on getting there, the doctor says she's um, anorexic. She's got no blood and apparently she's also seeing her period because I remember I had a really heavy flow that night and they said she's bleeding out. She's just, she's got nothing so she needs to be transfused and my aunt, I could just remember her going, I'm not her mom, I'm not her dad, I've got to call them. And again, remember the distance. So she calls my dad and says, you have to come here now. She needs to be transfused. And my dad, I don't know how he did it, but he was rushing down to me. But as he arrived, and he gave his consent for the blood. And so they had gone to the blood bank to get me blood. But apparently I collapsed. I just screamed and collapsed as I was talking to them and they lost me and um, for about a minute or two 
Unfortunately, the doctor was arriving at that point with the blood and they said, oh, she's gone. And I remember my mom screaming in the background, oh, mommy, because that's what they call me. It's my pet name, you see. And my dad shouting, no, you're not going to do this to me. And then the doctor gave me some sort of injection, which brought me back. And I remember my head splitting and I just screamed, my head. And that was how I came back. But I remember just feeling like I was in this vortex spiraling away and it was a horrible time it was a horrible time martin that year it was a hard year thank god that you're okay now listen good time for a break and it's a nice track heaven by dj sammy and yanu last segment of our interview it's been a fantastic pleasure and privilege chatting to uh, to you today valentina same here martin um, so you know you've um you've had these near-death experiences these ndes yes. um, but you know we were talking off air and you were saying you've always been empathic um i suppose it's time to talk about how it all comes together yeah, yeah. i've got a good feel for who you are as a person how did you end up involved in events? And then I guess how you ended up doing what you're doing with your events, you know, creating experiences to inject stronger, to create stronger teams. Tell us about how you got into it. So how I got into events is that I've always been that kid and that kid in the street who would try and get everyone together to create a better experience so everyone would be bonded. So I grew up in a world where we had this communal story time by moonlight which you call tales by moonlight and the kids would come and every time we went home to the village um, all the kids in the village or the clan would come out and we'll sit by the fire and an adult would tell us stories and that was great for my formative years because it helped me bond with these people and it's still a happy place for me to go to and so growing up I started to do that and when it was time for me to do go on my own and do business I thought well what's my passion my passion is helping people just seeing that smile on the faces of people as they let go and that's how I got into events and then slowly edged my way into the corporate world. I first started with CSR events, which is where I get um, companies and businesses to donate certain things to give to a community in Co need. Corporate social responsibility. Yes. Just for anybody yeah. who Oh, sorry. Yeah. Um, corporate social responsibility events. And um, so I would get organizations and businesses to donate items which mm -hmm. I would then give to a community in need and um, the feel-good factor for everyone was immense and I did this every year but then I had other other CSR events again corporate social responsibility events which I used to focus on and then I started to do Tango that's Friday events and that was mainly as a team bonding event or experience and then I moved into providing hosts and hostesses for events again with the aim to not just give you that event that has the extra oomph of making of Sorry. making it's okay of making your clients or your guests feel special and appreciated but also giving it structure so there was a proper structure to it and I started to provide hostesses and hosts for these events and um, experiential marketing I got into it by going to FMCGs and creating what's an FMCG? Um, fast sorry I forgot again <laughs> fast moving consumer good companies and I'll go to them and say to them well let's have this event to market your product and so that's how I got into experiential marketing events and so when we came here after Stephen had had his heart attack and we wanted to give back because that's at the core of who I am. I have to give back. Otherwise, I feel lost. I'm not one to just take and take and take. And so I moved that whole experience and knowledge into creating what we do now. OK, perfect, because I'm just looking at the clock we've got. I need you to do this now within about 45 seconds. Yes. In fact, I'll give you a minute to say what your events look like and how people can contact you. 
So what we do is we run a subscription service for companies. So if you're a company with five to 200 um, employees and you need to give them that extra oomph where they feel well in themselves. So what we do is provide protective factors for their mental well-being. We do this through a subscription service from three months down to a year and we do it weekly. So we have um, continuous professional development workshops which we run and we have other um, other well-being businesses which we collaborate with in addition to also giving you extra perks like discounts which you can then pass on to your employees so um, check us out on the website www.svhinc.co.uk I didn't ask if that was okay it is okay it's fine <laughs> on perfect the amount of times I say to people you've got 30 seconds and it takes 3 minutes and we get interrupted by the news it's terrible <laughs> so we've got 25 seconds now before we do go to the news so um, thank you at home or wherever you are for listening today we'll be right back next week and thank you Valentina for coming in today thank you for having me Martin and thank you all for listening I really appreciate and I'm happy for being here thank you Great, you've been listening to Martin Morrison and Valentina Hines on the Culture Pot on Radio Sangam. Take good care of yourselves and each other.